Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 12th, 2019, and my guest is futurist and author Amy Webb. She is the founder of the Future Today Institute. Her latest book is The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity. Amy, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks for having me. Your book's a warning about the challenges we face that are going to face in dealing with the rise of artificial intelligence. What is special about the book, at least in my experience reading about AI and worries about artificial intelligence is that it doesn't talk about AI in the abstract, but actually recognizes the reality that AI is mostly being developed within very specific institutional settings in the United States and in China. So let's start with what you call the big nine. Who are they? Sure. So what's important to note is that when it comes to AI, there's a tremendous amount of misplaced optimism and fear. And so as you rightly point out, we tend to think in the abstract. In reality, there are nine big tech giants who overwhelmingly are funding the research, building the open source frameworks, developing the tools and the methodologies, building the data sets, doing the tests, and deploying AI at scale. Six of those companies are in the United States. I call them the G-Mafia for short. They are Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, IBM, and Apple. And the other three are collectively known as the BAT, and they are based in China. That's Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Together, those big nine tech companies are building the future of AI, and as a result, are helping to make serious plans and determinations um, for, I would argue, the future of humanity. And just out of curiosity, I don't think you say very much at all in the book about Europe. Is there anything happening in Europe? In terms of research? Sure. So, the it, you know, there's plenty of happening um, in France, uh, certainly in Canada. Montreal is one of the global hubs for what's known as deep learning. So this is not to say that there's not pockets of uh, development and research um, elsewhere in the world. And it also isn't to say that there aren't uh, additional large companies that are helping to grow the ecosystem, certainly Salesforce and Uber are both contributing. However, when we look at the large systems um, and the ecosystems and everything that plugs into them, overwhelmingly, these are the nine companies um, that, that we ought to be paying attention to. So I want to start with China. I had an episode with Mike Munger uh, on the sharing economy and what he calls uh, in his book, Tomorrow 3.0. And in the course of that conversation, we joked about people getting rated on their um, social skills and that those would be made public, how nice the people were to each other. And we had a nice laugh about that. Uh, and I mentioned that I didn't think that was an ideal situation, that people would be uh, incentivized that way to be good people, uh, despite my general love of incentives. That made me uneasy. And in response to that episode, some people mentioned an episode of Black Mirror, uh, the um, video series, and also some of the things that were happening in China. And I thought, hey, 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 whatever. But what's happening in China is 
it's just it's uh, it's hard to believe. But tell us about it. Sure, and let me give you a quick example of of one manifestation of. Uh, of of this trend, um, and then sort of set that in in the broader cultural context. So there's a province in China uh, where a a new sort of global system is being rolled out, and it is continually mining and refining uh, the data of the citizens who live in that area. So as an example, if you cross the street when there's a red light and you are not safely able to cross the street at that point. Um, If you choose to anyways to jaywalk, uh, cameras that are embedded with smart recognition technology will automatically not just recognize that there's a person in the intersection when they're not supposed to be, but will actually recognize that person by name. So they'll use facial recognition technology along with technologies that are capable of recognizing posture and gait. Uh, it'll recognize who that person is. Um, their image will be displayed on a nearby digital, um, uh, bullet, not bulletin board, what do you call those, digital billboard, yeah. um, where their name and other personal information will be displayed. And it will also trigger a social media mention on a network called Weibo. Um, which is one of the predominant social networks in China. And that person's uh, probably their, some of their family members, some of their friends, but also their employer um, will know that they have, uh, they have infract, they, they've caused an infraction. So they've, they've crossed the street when they weren't supposed to. Um, and in some cases, uh, that person may be publicly told, um, publicly shamed, and publicly told to show up at a nearby police precinct. Now, um, this is sort of important because it tells us something about the future of recognition technology and data, which is very much tethered to the future of artificial intelligence. Now, the better known as the social credit score, China has been experimenting with this for quite a while, and they're not just tracking people as they cross the street. They are also looking at other um, ways that people behave in society, and that ranges from whether or not bills are paid on time to uh, how people um, perform in their social circles um, to disciplinary actions that may be taken at work or at school. Um, to ha- what people are searching on, you know, on the internet. And the idea is to generate some kind of a, a metric to show people definitively how well they are fitting into Chinese society as Chinese people. This probably sounds to the people listening to the show um, like, like, a, like a horrible Twilight Zone episode. No, or it sounds horrible... like 1984 is what it sounds right, like to right, me. It's right. really... It's not like, mm, I don't know if that's a good idea. It's more like, are you kidding me? Yeah. And so like, so when I first heard about this, my initial response was not abject horror. I was curious. Um, I was very curious you, to Amy. know. <laughs> but, but, but like, here, here's, here's what made me curious. Why bother? Right? I mean, China has 1.4 billion people. And if the idea is to deploy something like this at scale, that is a tremendous amount of data. And you have to stop and say to yourself, well, what's the point? So this is where some cultural context comes into play. So I I used to live in China, um, and I also used to live in Japan. And uh, they're very different cultures, very different countries. One distinctive feature of China is a 
community reporting mechanism that's sort of embedded into society. And going back many thousands of years, you know, China's an enormous, it's a huge piece of land. Um, and you've got people living throughout it. In fact, they're so spread apart. You have, you know, significantly different dialects being spoken. So, so one way to sort of maintain control over vast masses of people spread out geographically was to develop a culture, a sort of a tattletale culture. Um, and so throughout villages, you know, if you were doing something untoward uh, or breaking some kind of local custom or, or rule, um, that would get report. You would get reported sort of in a gossipy way, but you would get reported. And ultimately, um, that person that, that uh, heard the information would report that on up to maybe a a precinct or a feudal manager of some kind who would then report that up to whoever was in charge of the village or town, and, and then you would get into some kind of actual trouble. This was a way of maintaining social control. And so if you talk to people in China today, um, you know, a lot of people are aware of monitoring. Um, what I find so interesting is that at the moment, the outcry that we see outside of China does not match the outcry that I've observed, or I should say the lack of outcry um, that I've observed in China. Now, there's one other piece of this that's really important, and that uh, this is that, that, that using AI in this way ties into China's um, Belt and Road Initiative. And you, you might have heard about the BRI. This is sort of a master plan. It's a long-term strategy that... Um, helps China optimized, uh, optimize what used to be the, the previous Silk uh, Road trading route. Um, what's, but it's sort of built around infrastructure. What's interesting is that there's also a digital version of this, the sort of digital BRI, where China is partnering with a lot of countries that are in situations where social stability is not a guarantee. And so they're starting to export this technology into societies and places where there isn't that cultural context uh, in place. And so you have to stop and wonder and ask yourself, what does it mean uh, for 58 pilot countries to, to have in their hands a technology capable of mining and refining and learning about all of their citizens and reporting any infractions uh, on up to authorities, you know, in places like the Philippines, where free speech right now is question questionable, um, you know, this this kind of this kind of technology, which does not make sense to us as Americans, may make slightly more sense to people in China, um, becomes a dangerous weapon in the hands of an authoritative uh, authoritarian regime elsewhere in the world. It reminds me when you talk about the tattletale culture, of course. Soviets did the same thing. They encouraged people to inform on. I, I consider it tattletales. Sounds like a child reporting a uh, an insult. It, it, it's a monitoring mechanism by which uh, authoritarian governments keep people in line. And you talk about the lack of outcry. Well, one of the reason is is that if you're worried that your social score is going to be low, outcrying is probably not. A good idea. That's right. Uh, That's right. Um, it, you should mention also, which I got from your book, that it's not just like, mm, you know, it's awkward. It's kind of embarrassing. You have a low score. These scores are going to be are going to be used or being used to, to deal with whether people get credit, whether they mm -hmm. can travel. Is that correct? 
Right. So again, it's China. So we can't be 100% certain of the information that's coming out because it's very, very, it's a controlled information ecosystem. But from what we've been able to gather and in all of the research that I've done, it, um, you know, it, I would suggest that uh, it's already being used. It's certainly being used against ethnic minorities like the Uyghurs. Um, but but we've seen instances of scoring systems being used to make determinations about uh, schools that kids are able to get into. Um, you know, kids who through no fault of their own may have parents that have run afoul, you know, in some way and, and earned a slight, you know, earned emotions and demerits uh, on their social credit scores. Um, so, so it would appear as though this is already starting to affect people in China. Um, and again, you know, my, my job is to quantify and assess future risk. So as I was doing all of this research, you know, my mind immediately went to, well, what are the longer term downstream implications? I think some of them are pretty obvious, right? Like some people in China are going to wind up having a miserable life as a result of the social credit score. The social credit score uh, as it grows and is um, more widely adopted, to some extent, could lead to better social harmony, I guess, but also leads to, um, you know, quashing uh, individual ideas and, and uh, certain freedoms and expressions of um, individual thinking. But the flip side of this is, if it's the case that China has the BRI and it's um, investing in countries around the world, not just in infrastructure, but in digital infrastructure like uh, fiber and 5G and communications networks and small cells and all the different technologies um, in addition to AI and data. Isn't it plausible that sometime in the near future, you know, our, our future trade wars aren't just rhetoric, um, but, but could wind up in a retaliatory situation where people who don't have a credit score can't participate in the Chinese economy or businesses that don't have credit scores can't do, you know, can't trade or countries that don't have, you know, if, if we think about like a triple A bond rating, you know, what happens if this credit scoring system sort of evolves and China does business with only with countries that have a high enough score. I mean, we could quite literally get locked out of part of the global economy. It seems far-fetched, but I would argue that the signals are present now that point to something that could look like that in the near future. Well, this is going to be a pretty paranoid show episode of Econ Talk, so I'm okay with that kind of uh, uh, fear-mongering uh, because it strikes me as quite worrisome. And I, I think we have to be, as you you hinted at, you have to be open-minded that uh, maybe this will make a better Chinese society as defined by them. Um, you know, the, the Soviets wanted to create a new Soviet man and woman. Uh, they failed. Uh, but now with these tools, maybe there'll be a new Chinese man and woman who will be harmoniously living with their neighbor, never jaywalking and never gossiping and uh, smiling more off. Who knows? Uh, but it's not my first default thought about how this is going to turn out. I no, think but it, you kind of, I mean, you have to, st- so, th- and I just want to point out, like, I'm not, I, I'm not like a dystopian fiction writer. Um, I, I'm a pragmatist. So, um, 
not, this, this, I did not, I'm not studying all of this, uh, for the purpose of scaring people. What I would argue is I have studied all of this and used data and modeled out plausible outcomes. And it is scary. Uh, it, it really is. Um, because you have to, again, like connect the dots between all of this and other adjacent areas that are important to note. Um, you know, the, the CCP in China is uh, facing, Party. yep, is facing some huge opportunities, but also big problems. Uh, the Chinese economy may technically be slowing, but it's not a slow economy. There's plenty of growth, um, ahead. And if that holds, and there's no reason why at the moment it wouldn't, you know, Chinese society is about to go through social mobility at a scale never seen before in modern human history. And as that enormous group of people moves up, they're going to want to buy stuff. They're going to want to travel. Um, so, you know, that potentially causes some problems because the more uh, wealth that's earned, the more agency people feel, the more opinions they start having about how the government ought to be run. And, um, you know, the CCP effectively made president, the current president of China, Xi Jinping, you know, effectively president for life. And 1949, um, so, so sorry, 2049, which seems far off, but in the grand scheme of things, isn't really that far into the future, is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the CCP. China is very good at long-term planning. That Now, they've not always made good mm -hmm. on fulfilling promises, but they're good at planning. Yes, they are. Right? So, so I don't see... You know, I don't see all of this as sort of flashes in the pan and AI is kind of a hot, buzzy topic right now. I'm looking at the much longer term and the much bigger picture. That's what makes me kind of concerned. No, I think that's absolutely right. I, one other institutional detail to make clear for listeners is that uh, the Chinese Internet is roped off to some extent, to quite a large extent. They're developing their own tools and apps and, and talk about the three uh, companies in China that are working on AI and how they work together in a way that American uh, companies are not. So here's another interesting facet of the big nine and how AI is on sort of a dual developmental track. In China, uh, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent were all formed um, sort of in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And their origin stories are not all that different from our big modern tech giants like Amazon and Google and Apple. Um, the key distinction is that our big tech companies were formed out for the most part in Seattle, Redmond, and Cupertino, uh, California and San Francisco, uh, where um, the ecosystem was able to blossom. There's plenty of competition uh, and there were there was plenty of talent. Um, California uh, has fairly lenient, in some ways, has fairly lenient um, employer employee laws, which uh, has made it very easy for talent to move between companies. And if you're somebody who studies innovation, you know the sort of lack of the the, the, the limited or lack of regulation the um, ability for people to move around, um, you know, and... Letting people sort of, make enormous amounts of money when they succeeded yeah. and losing all of it when they failed. Right, right, right. But, you know, the lack of safety net, the lack of a central federal authority, if you will, um, is, is partly what enabled these companies to grow 
uh, and to grow fast and to grow big, which is why we also see a lot of overlap. So Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and IBM um, own and maintain the, the world's largest cloud infrastructure. Uh, so, you know, if you own a website or you're a business owner or you're making a phone call, at some point you're accessing one of their clouds. Um, you know, we have competing, for the most part, you know, we have competing um, operating systems for our mobile devices. Uh, for the most part, we still have competing uh, email um, systems. And that's because without a central authority dictating which one of the companies was going to do which thing, um, they all sort of did it, you know, they, they went alone, went, it, went on their own and, and built their own things. And, and so now um, we have tremendous wealth concentrated uh, among just a few companies who own the lion's share of patents, uh, who are funding most of the research. And, and you know, for the most part, uh, Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C. have an antagonistic relationship. That is not the case in China. So in China, uh, when the big tech companies were being formed there, you don't do anything in China without also in some way um, creating that business in concert with Beijing. Uh, or, or with with the government, um, you've got to pull patents. Or I'm sorry, you've got to pull uh, permits. You have to abide by various regulations and laws. People are checking in on you. Um, so while Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent may be independent financial organizations, in practical terms, they are very much working in lockstep with Beijing. Um, Alibaba, uh, for those of you not familiar with the company, is very similar to Amazon. So uh, it's a retail operation. Um, Tencent is very similar to our social media. So sort of Twitter meets gaming and chat. Um, and I'm sorry, I'll, uh, and, uh, and Baidu is sort of search, uh, it is the sort of Google-esque company of the bunch. Um, when China, when the Chinese government decided that AI was going to be a central part of its future plans, and this, this was decided years ago. It also decided that Tencent was going to focus on health, um, that Baidu was going to focus on cloud, uh, and that Amazon was going to focus on various... Amazon, Alibaba. I'm sorry, that, sorry, Alibaba was going to focus on um, various different you know, data aspects. Um, and I'm sorry, and Baidu was also going to focus on AI and transportation so, so it's not as though these companies came to these additional areas of research and work on their own. It was centrally coordinated. And that's a really, really important um, thing to keep in mind. If we've got a central government, a powerful government that is now, uh, that, that has this long-term vision and is centrally coordinating um, what's happening at a top level uh, with the research and the movements and everything else of these companies, Suddenly, you have a streamlined system where you don't have arguments about regulation. You don't have the companies at each other's throats. Are you know like like we've recently seen in the United States, Apple suddenly just calling for sweeping privacy regulations because to be fair, it's sort of they're already kind of far ahead and it it, it gives them a competitive advantage. You don't see all that infighting in China. Yeah, so so we have some fundamental differences, and and the real challenge is that while we're trying to sort all this out in the United States, you have a streamlined, 
central authority with three very powerful companies who are all now collaborating in some way on the future, in addition to a bunch of other top-level government initiatives to repatriate academics, to bring back um, top AI people, um, but also to do things like start educating kindergartners about AI. There is a textbook that is going to roll out this year throughout China um, teaching kindergartners the fundamentals of machine learning. I mean, you know, whereas in the United States, um, you know, some of our government officials, uh, you know, up until very recently sort of denied um, AI's capabilities. And only yesterday, uh, so this is February 11th, um, President Trump issued an executive order to... I guess it was a handful of bullet points on what AI ought to be, but it wasn't a policy paper. There's no funding. There's no government structure set up. There's no, I mean, it, you see where I'm getting at? Yeah, well, I mean, let, me, let me push back against that a little bit. Um, uh, you know, China is growing tremendously. As you point out, they're going to presumably, they're already in the middle of one of the greatest transformations in human history from the countryside to the city, from a low level of income to a much higher standard of living, and most of that's wonderful, and I'm happy about it. Um, we don't know exactly what their ambitions will be or are outside of their own borders, uh, and therefore what the repercussions are for us. As you suggest, they're doing a bunch of stuff. But the fact that they are top-down and planning and organized, and we're chaotic and disorganized, so just to take an example, you know, there's N companies in America, more than for, I don't know how many there are, working on various aspects of driverless autonomous vehicles. Um, there's Uber, there's Lyft, Apple, Google, you know, there's Waymo, there's uh, it's just there's a lot going on here. And a lot of that will turn out to have not worked out. <laughs> that That's the nature of creative destruction and, and capitalism. Some of those investments won't pan out. It'll, the gambles will, will fail and lose and people will lose all their money. And in general, Historically, that chaotic soup of competition uh, serves the average person and the people who are innovators quite well. Uh, the fact that China has, say, Baidu focusing on that and no one else having to worry about it could be a bug, not a feature. I I'm not convinced that, chi that China teaching kindergartners machine learning is, is going to turn out well. could be a mistake. could be an enormous blunder. They're not allowing um, the kind of experimentation, trial and error that, in my view, is central to innovation. So I think it remains to be seen how successful their walled garden with top-down gardening going on from the government's vision of what they want AI to serve is going to work out. It might. It, it, it could, and it could be hard. The outcomes might be really bad for not just the Chinese, but for other people, but it might just kind of fail. And I'm not even convinced that their growth path is going to continue, you know, the way it has in the past. A lot of people just assume that because they've grown dramatically over the last 25 years, they'll keep growing dramatically. There's a lot of ghost cities in China. There's a lot of overbuilding. I'm not so sure they have everything under control. So I, I think you have to have that caveat as a footnote to, to those concerns. I completely agree with you. Um, I, I would say that, you know, for years we've, especially in the United States, we've been indoctrinated into thinking that China is a copy-paste 
culture rather than a culture that understands how to innovate. And to some extent, I think that that is the result of that heavy-fisted, top-down um, approach to business. What I'm concerned about is not whether China uh, succeeds financially. Here's what I'm concerned about. The challenge with artificial intelligence is that it's already here. It is not, there's no event horizon. There's no single thing that happens. It's already here. And it's been here for a while. And in fact, it powers, uh, you know, artificial narrow intelligence now powers parts of our email. It powers the anti-lock brakes in our cars. Um, you know, and, and essentially, uh, this new third era of computing that we are in, if we assume that the first era was uh, tabulation, so that would have been Ada Lovelace in the late 1800s, and the second era was programmable systems, which would have been those early IBM, IBM mainframes on up to the you know desktop computers that we use today. This next era uh, is AI, and AI, uh, while we've seen it anthropomorphized in movies like Her and on shows like Westworld, at its heart, AI is simply um, systems that make decisions on our behalf. Uh, and they do that using uh, tools to optimize. So the challenge is that right now, systems are capable of making fairly narrow decisions. And the structures of those systems um, and which data they were trained on and how they make decisions and under what circumstances those decisions were made by a relatively few number of people working at the BAT in China and at the G-Mafia here in the United States. And the, the problem is that these systems aren't static. They continue to learn and they, be, you know, they, they join literally millions and millions of other algorithms that are all working in service of optimizing things on our behalf, which is why I agree with you that if we're talking about a self-driving uh, future, um, it's good to have competition uh, because for many, for all the usual reasons, right? We get better form factors, we get we get better vehicles, we get better price points. But when we're talking about uh, systems that are continuing to evolve, that grow more and more powerful, the more data they have access to and the more compute that they are given, more compute power. Um, and, and as we move into the more technical aspects, um, there are things like generative adversarial networks, which are specifically designed to um, play tricks to, to help systems learn more quickly. You know, we're, we're talking about um, slowly but surely ceding control um, over to systems to make these decisions on our behalf. And that is what concerns me. What concerns me is that um, we do not have a singular set of guardrails that are global in nature. We don't have norms and standards. I'm not in favor of regulation. On the other hand, um, we, we don't have any kind of agreed upon ideas for who and what to optimize for under what circumstances or even what data sets to use. And China has a vastly different approach than we do in the United States, in part because China has a completely different viewpoint on what details of people's private lives um, should be mined, refined, and productized.
Uh, and here in the United States, we've, you know, a lot of these companies have obfuscated how and when they are using our data. And the so challenge I, is that we have to, we all have to live with the repercussions. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, it, up to a point, I want to, I want to give you a chance to talk about some of the, some scary examples. I think the, uh, I'll I'll just say up front that for me underlying the, the this whole problem there are many different proximate causes and and concerns but there is it seems to me a, a very significant lack of competition we talked about how much competition is in the United States relative to China but certainly it, there, the concern for me is that uh, the big six here in the United States will stay the big six which will give them leverage to do a bunch of things that you or I might not like. I do want to add that whatever we do to regulate or constrain them via culture or whatever allows for the possibility that they don't stay the big six. And I think one of the challenges of any way to deal with these problems is that if you're not careful, you're going to end up creating a cartel that's it's it's de facto right now, but that can change. But if you make it de jure, you're going to end up with a, with much worse outcomes than than I think uh, we're going to have. But 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 to concede your point about concern, I, I do think the Silicon Valley uh, ethos of ask for forgiveness rather than permission, because right now there's no one you have to ask permission for generally. Uh, users are not paying much attention. There's very little regulation of how your private data is being used. Obviously, something happened on January 1st, 2019, because I get a lot of annoying bars on my websites that say, will you accept cookies? And I stupidly always click yes, like I'm sure most people do. And now they've complied with whatever required them to do that and they're moving along. So, you know, I do think that there are some serious issues here. And, and you give some examples in the book of where these corporations or China have done things and they really pay a price for it. <laughs> you know, they just keep going. Uh, the Facebook Cambridge Analytical problem, the example you give of China pressuring Marriott the way that uh, their website was designed in terms of territorial uh, recognition of China's sovereignty over various places that are somewhat up in the air. Those are serious issues, I think. And more importantly, they're just the tip of the iceberg. So talk about a couple of those things that you're worried about that that I think are alarming. And um, normally, the marketplace would punish these folks, and not much does. So so, so I, love, I love what you just said. Um, which is that the mark under so so that's curious, right? Why has the marketplace not punished the big nine or at least the G Mafia, right? Or or at least Facebook? Um well, it's published them a little bit. I mean, I think their well, their users are down. I'm about I'm thinking about delete deleting my Facebook page. Uh and I'm sure and I've switched to DuckDuckGo for my searching. It's a really small step, but these are things that maybe people are starting to do in a little slightly bigger numbers. Maybe, but I, you know, again, like I don't have access to the whole world's data, thank God. <laughs> uh, but, um, and, and you, let's, you know, let's just reveal our biases. Like you and I are, are digitally savvy people. So, but, but I think if you. You're kind, Amy. <laughs> um, well, but, but you are. So, but, but I think, you know, the fact that you even know what DuckDuckGo Duck is and that, that you're somebody who's using it, you know, I think is quite telling. Um, but, but for how long have we continued to hear like how many breaches have we heard about of our trust right over the past 12 months and we continue to hear outcries and people continue to be really upset and we just don't see 
significant drops in numbers that would suggest the marketplace is punishing um, companies the, the, the way that they might in other circumstances. I think that's curious. And I think the reason is because is, is not because Google, Amazon, Apple, IBM, Facebook, uh, and Microsoft make our lives a little bit better, but rather um, that our lives don't work without these companies. Now, it's possible, you, you could argue that Facebook could maybe quietly go away, and for some organizations and companies that run part of their businesses using that platform, it would be pretty annoying, you know, but, but life would go on. Um, very, our, we, we don't function. Modern society in America literally does not function without Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. Um, huge parts of the business world do not function without IBM. And if you look at mobile phone and personal device usage, like most Americans are using in some way um, Apple. So, so the problem is we can get all angry, like we can get as angry as we want, but, but we don't have a choice. Uh, which is that true? Is, uh, I got to challenge that just for a second. Yeah. Sorry for interrupting. I, I might give you an example. Um, I just bought an Apple XR. The, I don't know how you pronounce it. 10R, the, their phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love it. It's fantastic. Uh, when I bought it, I, I forgot that, oh, actually my earbuds that I like are not going to work with, with the new phone because it doesn't have a, a jack. So, when I was at the store and I, I asked if they had a, an adapter, they did. To my relief, it was under $10. I was exp- Apple in the old days, you know, it's the kind of thing they charged $32 for. And you'd go, well, I got to have it. I'll just pay $32. I was kind of thrilled. It was, I think it was $7.95. I was shocked at how reasonable it was. But of course, the other view was, you're telling me they're going to force you to buy an adapter because you can't use your old earbuds? And the answer is, yeah, they're going to do that. And uh, I was happy to pay the seven ninety five. In fact, you could argue for people who don't have earbuds or just going to use the ones that Apple provides with the phone, they shouldn't have to pay the implicit seven ninety five. So it's all okay. And most of us, most of the time, are happy with the deal, right? We're happy with it. We don't care. That's the problem for me. One of the problems, besides the competition, my problem with your claim is that. Most of us just, it's fine. Okay, it's not great. It, 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 yes, they occasionally leak our data, but most of us just live with it. And I, like you, I'm, and I, I'm increasingly alarmed, but I think it's hard for the average person listening to go, what's all the fuss about? Sure. I like so, Facebook. I like, I love Google. I love it. These are companies that we don't just like, eh, it's pleasant. We really, like you say, they make our lives sing. And most of the time, we're happy. So okay. what's the worry? I, I hear you. And so this is honestly, this is not just about privacy. I would argue this is about future competition and choice. And and that is one of the things that concerns me most. So let me paint a picture for you. Um, a couple months ago, Google, uh, Amazon had a big uh, press announcement. They were talking about uh, Alexa and the developer kit. They, they were making a bunch of very sort of highly technical announcements. And at the very, very tail end of this press event, they almost as a footnote um, revealed a brand new product and that was an Amazon Basics microwave. Did you hear about this? Only in your book. Keep going. Okay. Yeah. I did so, I had not so, heard about it. Why? Well, it was because it didn't make news. Yeah. And the couple of places like it showed up on Gizmodo and a couple of like super tech blogs. 
Um, and the big deal about the $60 Amazon microwave is that it has Alexa. And so you can talk to Alexa. And for the most part, that elicited snark, right? Yeah, um, who needs what, you know? Right. Typical Americans, we can't like bring ourselves to push the buttons on our microwave to pop our popcorn. We we're so lazy. We need to talk to it. And again, this was one of those. This is one of those times when I said, but wait a minute, why would they do that? Right. Why go through the headache and the heartache of launching a pro I mean, it's hard to launch a product. It's hard to launch a product that exists already in the marketplace that has a fairly significant twist, which is going to cause you to have to educate consumers. Like why bother? Right. And here's, here's where I arrived. Um, if one of amazon.com's core functions at the moment is selling us stuff like popcorn, right? Um, we've noticed that lately you can subscribe to all different types of things. Why would Amazon do that? Um, because people tend to run out of things and, you know, this, this helps them not run out. However, it also ensures if I'm subscribing to popcorn um, that I'm not going to buy it at my local grocery store. So now let's think this through. If I'm somebody who buys microwave popcorn and I pop that popcorn in my Amazon Alexa-powered microwave, one of the pieces of data that I'm revealing to Amazon is not just that I am a subscriber to popcorn, but that um, I, you know, how much popcorn I've popped uh, so that Amazon can track how many bags I've gone through. And rather than sending me a monthly box of popcorn, which may not, which, which may not be enough or maybe too much, depending on the month. This is a way for Amazon to mine and refine my data in order to optimize that popcorn delivery specifically for me. And how magical would it be if Amazon knew exactly the moment that I was about to run out of popcorn and, and sent me a replenishment? Now, again, this doesn't sound like a bad thing on the face of it, right? Like, Sounds it would pretty be good. pretty amazing. Yeah. Sure, it'd be amazing if, like, if, if Amazon knew when I was going to run out of all my stuff and it just showed up for me. And, it's, the and, end, uh, it's the end of suffering. We never have to go through right. that popcornless night at the movies on our big screen TV okay. at home. So now let's connect some other dots. Amazon has entered into a joint venture with J.P. Morgan and uh, Berkshire Hathaway. And it's no secret that Amazon and Google and Apple also, as well as IBM, are all looking at healthcare. They're all yep. somehow involved in the health space. Um, so isn't it plausible that someday in the future, with all of my Amazon devices, Amazon has looked at my Fitbit or whatever d fitness device I'm wearing, um, has been monitoring my caloric intake, has seen that I haven't gotten on my you know, fancy uh, bicycle. Uh, Amazon basics bicycle. Yeah. That's right. And, and I put that bag of popcorn in the microwave and guess what? The microwave won't pop it because it has determined that I don't get to eat that popcorn today. Um, that again, like that's the kind of thing where I really do think it's going to show up and it's going to sneak up on us. Um, and, and I don't think that Amazon is hell-bent on making sure that all Americans are thin and svelte. I don't think that's what this is about. I think, again, we've got small groups of people trying to optimize decisions on behalf of us all. And these are the kinds of things that don't get thought through in advance. They are the kinds of decisions that people make 
and then ask for forgiveness later on. And as long as we're on this topic, currently our voice-based systems, as well as some of these other AI systems are not interoperable to some extent because they use different programming languages, to some extent because they are literally on different types of silicon and they are parts of different um, ecosystems. So if you are somebody who currently has a house full of Google Home connected devices and you try to introduce an Amazon device, uh, you know they don't necessarily talk to each other. Um, conversely, if you are an Amazon home with a bunch of Alexa uh, devices, which I now realize if, I've, if, you've, if you're listening to this in your house, I've probably set off your devices 15 times in the past three minutes. I apologize. Alexa, Alexa, Alexa. <laughs> but, 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 like, but like think this through. Isn't it plausible that in our lifetimes, in the very new, near future, because we didn't have some kind of forethought, we're going to wind up. Uh, in Amazon homes or Google homes or, or you'll be an Apple household um, where all your devices are with just one of those ecosystems and our data are tethered to them. I mean, think of how much of a pain in the neck it is to, to change mobile operating systems. If you've ever tried to go from Android to Apple or vice versa, it's hard. Now we're talking about all this other data, the ambient data that's part of your daily life, all of it. Plus, we didn't even talk about health and diagnostics and all of these other things that are all tied into these systems, you know, and, and if those data sets become heritable, you know, we're talking about um, a, a future situation in which your family could be an Apple family or an Amazon family or a Google family and and your children may decide they want to marry into other Google families or other Apple families because it's too much of a pain in the neck to, to swap otherwise. I know that sounds like science fiction, but it's, it's very much within the realm of, of plausibility. So I, I just have to um, digress for a second here. And uh, having said Alexa a few times, I'm just going to mention Marty Feldman and Blucher for people who are young Frankenstein fans. And if you mm. want to look that up, folks at home, well, we'll probably put a link up to it, I guess. We'll, we'll deal with that. But so I, I want to take your example seriously. It sounds comical, but I don't think it is. And, and I think it's actually quite important. I'm going to give you a, a version of it that you refer to in the book and, and see if you think it's of this nature. So right now I use Gmail even though I use DuckDuckGo for search, I do use Gmail and I use Google Calendar. And I've said this before, I love that it, when I make a plane reservation, it puts it on my calendar automatically. I'm a sucker for that, like talking to the microwave. I'm, I'm embarrassed, but I do like it. I think it's cool and it's convenient and it saves a little bit of time. The other thing that happens with Gmail that I happen to really like is it started adding these possible responses. Thanks so much. No, I don't think so. Oh, great. And... About one out of five, I just click the box that automates the response to an email. And I think, well, that's pleasant. That's exactly what I would have said. Sometimes I click the box and then I add a few words or I take away the exclamation point or I add the exclamation point. And, you know, sometimes I think, well, it's not exactly what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'll just click the box. And I think this kind of, uh, I would call it corporate nudging, which you reference in the book uh, quite a bit is is what's it's the slippery slope so it starts off you sure you want popcorn today you've had three bags this week and you're still able to hit yes <laughs> and override it but is it possible that there would be a day 
when because of my health care payments and I've got a bargain uh, on my health care insurance, if I allow Google to cut me off from uh, or Amazon to cut me off from popcorn and pay an f- extra fee for that. Uh, there's all kinds of things there that are really that strike at the heart of how we live our lives. I, I, I you know, so I definitely, I definitely agree with you. Where I think I'm a little more optimistic than you is I imagine our culture is going to change. And now, of course, it's going to change in ways that it's already changed an enormous amount. I, I think young people feel very differently about, say, privacy than older people. They feel very differently about digital life, virtual life relative to, you know, brick and mortar life, real life. Uh, so it's already changing. A lot of these things that, that you and I might find alarming thinking about that maybe people in the future will just go, eh. So they cut me off for my popcorn. It's for my own good. <sighs> now, I, I look at that and I think that's a, dimu- a reduction. I can't say the word. Diminution, diminution of human agency and life and choice. And I really don't want AI making my decisions about who to date and what career to take and how I ought to spend my weekend, right? So right now they might say, here's some restaurants you might like, or here's a movie you might enjoy, or here's a book. And most of those I love because I find out about books and movies I didn't know about. But are we, will we really go down a path where it controls what I do? You could argue, I guess it already does. Well, people, so that's the, yeah. but I mean, I'm, so again, like how did we wind up at this point? Why would somebody think, well, this, you got to constantly ask these questions, right? So why would somebody have thought to make that? And you could argue that one of the things that the modern internet brought us was tyranny of choice, right? And we are, we are, we have access, you know, when I think of when I first moved to Japan in the <clears throat> mid nineties, <laughs> long, long time ago, um, you know, there, there was no internet where you could buy stuff. I mean, there was an internet, but, but e-commerce was very, very early. And if I wanted Crest toothpaste, I had to fax my request to the foreign buyers club and wait for a month. Um, the fact that you can now order that on Amazon, you know, as well as like any other thing that you express, you got a lot of choices in some cities. Right. Um, you, you could argue that, using AI to make recommendations was simply an antidote to the tyranny of choice, which we created for ourselves um, in the early days. And one could certainly argue that that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, the big joke at Netflix now is that Netflix will literally green light everything, right? Which is why (laughs) there's so much stuff on Netflix to the point (laughs) where, yeah, I mean, it's hard to now, um, if you, if you compare Netflix, uh, you know, three or four years ago, it's hard to find to to surface great content. So, um, so so that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is nobody asked me what I wanted, and somebody somewhere made a decision that that this nudging is best for me. And let me give you a concrete example of of how that manifests in my life in the real world. I have I have not been in a car accident. Um, I'm a, I think I'm a pretty safe driver. Uh, I don't tend to break the rules. Um, the car that I drive, when I back into my driveway, the sound automatically turns itself down. So I have, a, I have on the a, radio. On the radio. So I have a parking pad. I'm not. I don't live on a busy street. I have a, I have a garage that's tucked pretty far away, and I always back in. And somebody decided <laughs> that um, it was best for me as the driver 
to automatically turn that radio down, regardless of what I'm listening to, regardless of what kind of driver I am, um, anytime that I've got my car in reverse. There's no law saying, there's no federal mandate or law requiring that. Um, there's no uh, statistics that, as far as I know, there's no, there's not enough data saying that um, an accident will be prevented or some huge yes, number of accidents yeah. will be, you know what I mean? So like just somebody thought that was a good feature and I can't override it. That may seem like, that may not seem very important. To me, this is like a paper cut. And the challenge with paper cuts is that you get one or two and you don't sort of notice them. Maybe they're annoying for five seconds and then you kind of just learn to live with it, right? And you don't really notice it anymore. What we're talking about with AI and these systems built by relatively small groups of homogenous people who are making decisions intended to govern us all, working at six companies in the United States and three in China, the, the problem is that we are going to start experiencing paper cuts at a fairly rapid clip. You have one or two cuts, not a big deal. Suddenly your entire body is covered in paper cuts and your life is very different. You know, you may still be alive, but I mean, stop and like visualize and think about what that would feel like. Suddenly life is nothing like it was before. You're miserable and you don't have any way to override those paper cuts because they just keep coming back seemingly out of nowhere. I mean, that's the kind of future that, that I'm hoping to prevent. So the normal way, I'm gonna, I have two thoughts on that, and I'm not sure they're right, but it, just two thoughts. One is, you know, my point about how culture changes. You know, if you put a, if you put my grandfather born in 1898 into, um, into the modern world, he'd find it very difficult. Um, there'd be a lot of things he wouldn't recognize. There'd be, a, you know, in just 100 years, 120 years, when he was a young man of 20 in 1918, roughly 100 years ago, um, being 20 now is really different. Um, it would be weird for him to watch people walking down the street looking at their phones all the time. I think they're probably mentally disturbed. Um, many of them would be talking while they're walking with their earbuds. And it would be jarring, and, and more than just jarring, and you could explain some of it to him, just the things that gave him pleasure would be different and maybe not available, which is part of your point, right? Um, the freedom to do all kinds of things, some of them small, like listening to the music as you back into your driveway at the same volume, some of them large, like you say, it's coming, there'll be things coming. So one view says is that if they come, maybe people aren't as bothered by it as we are in thinking about them. The second issue is, you know, if you make a really bad decision, and a lot of your book uh, echoes some of the concerns of Kathy O'Neill uh, in her book, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction, and she was a guest on Econ Talk. We'll put a link to that episode. Now, there's a very, as you say, it's a very homogenous group, mostly white men uh, designing these things. But if you don't, historically, in a, in a capitalist system, if you don't design things well and take into account the fact that people aren't like you, you don't do very well. Right? If you think everybody's like you and likes to sit and code all night in your room, uh, you're going to be a lousy designer of products for people. What's scary to me and, and my, the concern that I share with, with, with you is that I'm not sure that the profit and loss motive is doing a really good job of constraining those choices. And I see it in lots of ways, some of which you talk about in your book, some of which I see elsewhere, the freedom that Amazon and Google – and Apple have to do things that are 
just kind of funky. I can't even describe them. They're things that, you know, normally a company couldn't do that because they'd lose so much money, they'd go out of business. But there's an enormous cushion for these companies in terms of their profitability. And so let's turn. It's, <laughs> uh, I'll just tell listeners before we started this, Amy, that I said, we'll spend the first half on what the problem is and the second half on what to do about it. And we are now, oh, 55 minutes in. And so if, if we can go a little over an hour, that'd be great. Uh, talking about what to do about it. Um, so normally you wouldn't do anything about it. You'd say, well, the profit motive and competition will constrain these kind of ridiculous uh, mistakes and and forms of arrogance and tribal weirdness that that this culture is produced out of Silicon Valley and Redmond and, and elsewhere. But I don't see it happening. So what I naturally look to is how do I inject a little more competition into the system? How do I change the incentives that these folks face to do a better job taking account of what I want, not what they want? Yeah, so this is where things get a little complicated. And, you know, I just want to be very clear. I don't think big tech is the enemy. Um, I, I don't think that the G-Mafia are the villains. Um, in fact, I think they are our best hope for the future. Um you know, and introducing competition at this point may not elicit the same type of responses that you might see in other market sectors and in other industries. And I think part of the reason for that is that the technology that these companies uh, build and maintain is is the invisible infrastructure powering everyday life. It's not a single widget or even a series of widgets. Fair enough. Um, and, and I think the challenge is that if you try to, for example, introduce competition in the cloud space, which might be the, you know, or even try to break up Amazon a la Baby Bells, right, uh, yep. from years ago. And I've actually heard that suggested before. You know, the challenge is that the technology that Amazon Web, like that AWS, the infrastructure and the technology that that that, that entire system relies on, and therefore <laughs> huge parts of the government and, and our largest businesses, you know, that are customers, um, the, the challenge is that that technology bleeds over into other aspects of Amazon's uh, core functions. There's There aren't solid walls. Um, and so... If, if it's the case that at this point competition is not possible, then, then what are some other ways forward? Um, you know, this, this March, uh, so, so very, uh, you know, I think it's March, pr pretty soon from now, um, is the 30th anniversary of Tim, Tim Berner-Lee's seminal paper and suggestion to CERN that sort of outlined the core premise of the Internet. And everybody at the, the idea, uh, everybody at the time that saw that thought it was kind of a boring but interesting idea. Um, and the challenge is that nobody thought that through sort of, you know, if, if the internet becomes something beyond universities connecting to each other to share research, if it becomes something else, and technology always becomes something else, right, then what are, what, how do we mitigate that? Um, how do we prevent against plausible risk, right? And, and one way I think that we could think about the future of AI is to treat it, um, you know, similar to a public good, the way that we might treat air, 
right? And I know that's a complicated that that's complicated, and I know it sends some shockwaves into economists who would argue with me that I'm totally off base, and you can't possibly apply that. Um, the the public good concept I think works because it first of all tells us that we all have a stake, that we're not just going with the flow, um, and it also then helps us think about global guardrails, um, and and that then. You know, I, I know I, it sounds like I'm angling for regulation. I'm not. I'm angling for widespread collaboration um, with some very specific agreed-upon tenants. So, you know, principles that go beyond the, the obvious, like make sure that AI is safe, um, but, but that, you know, that, that, that everybody on the planet would agree to things like it, whenever an investor invests money in, in AI for whatever reason, that part of that investment must be allocated to um, uh, making, uh, making safety a priority or cleaning up one of the training databases, um, you know, things like that. And having some kind of global body uh, again, I'm not usually in favor of huge government and big bureaucracies, but I think in this particular case, we cannot, we can't just assume that these companies who have motivations that I don't think are always in line with what's best for humanity, we can't assume that they're going to take care of the stuff on their own. Um, yeah, I'm sure your listeners know, like a couple of weeks ago, Google... Uh, had to assure, reassure investors that an enormous spend on R&D was worthwhile. You know, like people got spooked. Um, you know, when we're talking about game-changing huge technologies uh, and research areas like AI, and there's no, we have no basic, we have no federal funding. We have no basic funding research in, or not anywhere near enough in some of these areas outside of military expenditures. Somebody's got to do it. And in, and the challenge is that investors expect um, some kind of return on investment or some kind of shiny new widget that gets revealed, you know, on a on a quarterly basis, as though you can schedule big R and D breakthroughs. You know, we have to we have to. So if there was some kind of global agency that that acted a little bit more like the IAEA, uh, with the caveat that I'm not saying AI is a weapon. Um, you know, then, then we would have some mechanism to think this through. We would need some kind of, you know, going back to those questions around tribalism and culture, I think we need to have some kind of global human culture or values atlas um, that, that is going to take time to build but describes and is not static um, all, you know, how we interpret things culturally, how we relate to each other, because ultimately these systems don't just live within the geographic boundaries of our countries, they, they travel. Um, so, I mean, I think that there are a lot of solutions that are, that are, you know, top down, but we individuals have to take some responsibility as well, um, which means we have to get smarter about what data we're shedding and when and how and where and why. We have to demand transparency. And I think it's, it's possible for the, for the big tech companies to be more transparent without sacrificing IP, you know, um, you know, and our universities, I think, have to have to take more responsibility and shift their curricula to include difficult questions, um, not just in a single ethics class, but so that they weave um, questions and worldviews and, you know, other things into into their core curricula. So, so this is like a, there, there is no single fix here. Um, but the good news is that uh, 
there's something for all of us to do. And collectively, if we can get it together, um, that to shift the developmental track of AI, I think the optimistic scenarios are possible. I really do. Uh, my concern is that everybody's going to say, you know, this isn't, a, I don't feel the pain all that much yet. So I'm, I'm cool waiting. Well, the first step is to pay attention. And I love your book for encouraging me to pay attention and, and others, anyone who's listening. And I think it, it does a great job of that. I think the solution challenge is, is quite, as you said, is where it gets complicated. There's no, I can't think of a single example where this kind of global collaboration works out well. I mean, you could, it, to me, it's, it's like the United Nations. It's a really great idea. It's a beautiful idea. You have a nice quote from Isaiah on the front of about beating your plows, uh, in, your swords into plowshares. And it, it's just the distance between the ideal and how it actually works in practice is so vast that it, my view is probably better not to have it at all. But I can understand you could, you could debate that. But I'm not optimistic that a, quote, global collaborative effort would work uh, in any way that would make you happy at the end of the day. I want to try to suggest, but maybe I'm wrong, but I want to suggest a different approach and see if you think there's anything to it. So you said it's it's like a public good. You're talking to an economist. I don't have any problem with that language. I think what is certainly has public good aspects to it is the role of digital stuff in our lives. You, you can't say, well, I want a digital world like mine and your digital world to be like yours. We, we kind of consume that one air that you're talking about, and I think that's very apt and apropos about how to think about this. Uh, but is it possible? Is it imaginable that we could have a different way of interacting with each other digitally than the current way that would allow a little more of what we might call a privatization or a more choice or more, uh, more options? Um, so right now, underlying all of this is this idea that some really bright people figured out some really clever ways to use knowledge about us to make money. And it's, it's especially clever because it's free to us on the surface. It's not literally free. It's not free in lots of ways, by the way. Uh, so when I, I, used to, I'm, I'm, I used to say all the time, well, Google's free. What's the big deal? Well, it's not literally free in any sense. It's true. I don't make a payment each time I do a search. But, but it turns out that, of course, Google uses the information that I use when I search and access to me in all kinds of ways to charge people for access to me and instead of me getting to charge access. And it's their pipe, so I kind of get it, and that's the way it's worked out. But we could imagine a different world, either through regulation, not my first choice either, obviously. But I think technologically, I want to come back to something Arnold Kling said in a blog post recently. He said, you don't like Facebook, the way they handle privacy? Make a better one. And you can say, well, that's really hard to do. It's almost impossible. Everybody's already locked in and network effects and blah, blah, blah. But I think there, we have a lot of really smart people. And one way to get around these kind of scary dystopic, dystopian concerns is for people to say, I don't like the way the Internet's designed. I want a different one. And people smarter than me, I can't figure it out that people write about it occasionally, that blockchain could be the basis for a different kind of Internet. I literally, you know, I, I try to read the articles. They don't make sense to me. My fault. But I imagine that that could happen. And it seems to me that's the right way to fix this problem and to build in a different relationship between me and these companies that create services for me that actually they're exploiting. 
I think there is for, you know, if we're talking about, if, if we're talking about the realm in which we as individuals have personal relationships with parts of the big nine, then yes, I think it is plausible, uh, not impossible, but certainly challenging for somebody to develop an alternative to Facebook, you know, that promises initially to uh, somehow get around a lot of the challenges um, that, that Facebook has had. At the end of the day, though, we're still humans. And the parts of the digital infrastructure that, that we seem to complain about will follow us. This is the same reason why I don't think that colonizing, like everybody who wants to colonize Mars, um, you know, I, it's like, you know, that's terrific. Uh, it's a wonderful idea. It's not going to solve your problems. <laughs> the problems that you have on this planet are going to follow you to the next planet, right? Yeah. So, so I think if we're talking about the realm of personal technology, sure, some of these issues can be solved. Somebody could certainly start another Twitter. I would welcome somebody starting another Twitter that has um, a different approach to speech. Um, so, so that's fine. I'm actually concerned about these systems that, that mine our data um, in, in a much more broad sense, and not just our personal data, but our company's data, um, our local traffic data, you know, all of these all of these systems that are learning from us in real time. And ultimately, these narrow artificial intelligence applications, are beginning to gain some momentum. Uh, there's some terrifically interesting research out of a, a group called DeepMind, which is a subset of Google. And you know, I read one of their most recent papers. Um, they've they've trained a system called AlphaGo. Uh, Alpha Zero is the new version of the algorithm, which is now capable of going from zero knowledge to learning how to play uh, several games at once. And that may not seem all that thrilling to listeners, but, but what it portends and, and what's really truly remarkable about this research is that without humans working hard to train systems, these systems are now capable of training themselves and also creating child AIs to perform some of the tasks for them. And they are doing this in ways that defy our understanding. When we say artificial intelligence, I think that that's actually a misnomer because it assumes that the systems that we are building that are now propagating on their own remotely resemble the way that we think. Um, we don't actually understand enough of our own human brains. Um, you know, what's, what's probably a better term is alien intelligence, not artificial intelligence, and, and semantics matter. Artificial intelligence makes us feel as though we still have some agency. My concern is that as these systems propagate, they become more and more alien to us in ways that we don't understand. And at some point, they start making more important decisions where the stakes are higher on behalf of us all. And there is a God in that system, and that is the original group of people who created it upon which the foundation was built and all the learning took place. So if that if it's the case that we are in the, the midst of that transition at the moment, I'm hoping that enough people wake up that we do not close our eyes just as the machines are gaining awareness and that 
we we ourselves wake up and we demand a change in the developmental track. And that doesn't mean that these companies can't make plenty of money. And it certainly doesn't mean that the companies are evil or even that the people who work in these companies have some kind of nefarious plan. I believe, uh, you know, Chinese government withstanding, um, notwithstanding, I, I believe that the people who are in this, who are working, are, are working on trying to solve humanity's grandest challenges but they are doing so within ridiculous constraints that have to do with um, the market and the whims of investors and what direction the wind is blowing in Washington, D.C. and who's decided maybe this is the year for regulation. Um, that, that, those are my concerns. Not, you know, the, the, personal, the personal relationship that we have to Facebook is, of course, a piece of this, but it's the bigger picture that ought to concern us all. So I think you and I, I assume, I, I know it's true for me, I assume it's true for you. We know a lot of these people. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I socialize with them occasionally when I'm out in California in the summer. And the people who work at the G-Mafia, they're wonderful people. They're, but the incentives they face are what affect how they behave. And um, in general, I, as obvious listeners know, obviously listeners know, I, I like most of those incentives. But I do think, in this case... It seems to be a little bit different potential. I'll give, I'll give you an example, and, and maybe we'll close on this. You can react to this. So Facebook's had a bad run. Um, they've had data breaches. They've had issues about whether they distorted what people saw on their timeline for, on political grounds. So we haven't even talked about this. You know, Some of this is going to strike at, at democracy in all kinds of ways that we haven't even begun to think about or worry about. It's coming. It's going to be... I think it's going to get so much uglier than we th- we think it's ugly now. It's going to get immensely uglier, and I'm very, very concerned about that. And and Mark Zuckerberg was dragged in front of Congress, and he did a few semi mea culpas. And but here's what he didn't do: what he didn't do is say, you know, a few years back, I was a really bright kid in a dorm room at a university with some buddies, and we had an idea, and it turned into Frankenstein. <laughs> It turned into something we certainly didn't plan, couldn't imagine, and now we think we're steering it. It's kind of steering us, you know, the the market, as you say. He's got to make a certain amount of money. He's got investors who came on when the stock was already high. They don't want to be told that it's not going to go so well in the future. But what he could have said was, can't literally, but you could imagine a world where he would say, it's good enough. I like Facebook the way it is. It's a fabulous platform. And I'm not just going to run a bunch of ads like they did this summer that's, that try to make us romanticize and Facebook and feel nostalgic about its early days, those cute, really nice ads to good music. I'm just going to give it up. I'm going to turn it over to a foundation and let the people run it without concern for whether it makes a lot of money. I'm going to turn it into what we could call a utility, but not one that needs to make money, that just serves people. And that foundation will be staffed by volunteers who love it and care about it, but it won't be driven to make money. And this just sounds like the most heretical thing I've ever said on Econ Talk because it sounds like I'm against making money. And we all, everyone who knows me knows I'm not against making money. But in a world where there's not a lot of competition, that desire to make money is a nasty, can be a nasty thing. And I don't see any signs that, as I said earlier, that, that Facebook, I mean, Zuckerberg's played a social price. I'm sure some of his friends are embarrassed. But it's a weird thing that you can't get off that horse. 
you can't just it's already gone public it's not yours anymore and um it seems to me we need to be thinking about ways to take knowledge which is fundamentally what underlies these platforms these brilliant gorgeous extraordinary ways that we interact with each other and make them a little less about making money a little more about doing something else and the people who created them lose control of them and then they're stuck um but my joke is, you know, I love Evernote. Evernote's fantastic. If it ever disappears, I'm going to be really lost. Uh, it's fine as it is. I don't need to get better. I need to get bigger. Just keep it like it is. It's fine. It's great. Now, I understand it has to work with the new platforms, and so maybe it's not as trivial a problem as it sounds just to keep it as a sort of static historical event. But um, this this idea that you need to just keep mining more and more stuff out of my life to sell it to other people that I don't know about, as you point out, is a little bit disturbing. But how do I'm you reconcile? Of my, I'm off of my soapbox now. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm li- listen, I, I'm li- I was like virtually high-fiving you the whole time, but, but here's the, but how, you know, how do we reconcile something that I think we all grok, like on some level, right? How do you reconcile what you just said with our market economy in the United States where shareholders have been led to believe that big tech equals massive returns. I mean, oh, I can't. think, you, you can't. know, right. And the difference, so, so then what we're left with is China. No, China no, no, God forbid. No, no, there, well, there's a third the, way. There is a third way. Is, the third way is nonprofit. I, it, it's a weird thing that we think that the opposite of government is business. The opposite of government is not top down. And not top-down has two forms, business and nonprofits. That's foundations, philanthropy, volunteer organizations. Uh, a bunch of really smart people, if they wanted to, could create an alternative to Facebook soon. That would ha- it'd have, You'd have to have a reason for it to exist. Just It wouldn't be enough that it's called Nosebook. It'd have to have, that's my dad's name for it. It's a little inside joke for my dad because he can't remember the name of it. He's 88. Um, he actually does. He just likes to call it Nosebook. Makes him laugh, <laughs> right? But but you can't just say, oh, we're going to create a Facebook that isn't Facebook. You, have, you say, here's a Facebook that isn't going to filter your news, isn't going to allow hate speech, whatever it is, and let people gravitate toward that. Now, one of the challenges of this, quote, solution is you don't want a whole new tribe of people who are all getting together, right? Like, like I don't want conservative Twitter, liberal Twitter, libertarian Twitter, uh, Nazi Twitter. I, I, it's kind of – even though Twitter is a really ugly place at times – at least I get to see who's being ugly, sort of. It's not, of course, it's can right, be anonymous. Right, but that's, that's the consumer. So again, like that's the consumer implementation. Those are people using the products that are built. The challenge is that if you turn, you know, if you turn Nosebook into a uh, into a nonprofit, Facebook becomes a nonprofit. They've got plenty of money. A, I don't know exactly how that would work, but but let's say that's what happens. Then. Where does the enormous sum of money come to push forward and do all of the magical things, for example, that are that are that that Facebook R and D is working on? Um, so some of which may not need to exist, like Facebook Portal. Um, that that's their Great version example. of right. Yeah. But but there are not other that in my things. house. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but, but there are plenty of other things. I mean, Google has pushed pretty far ahead on some. Uh, again, like we we cannot think of these 
exponential technologies in a silo. We have to think about the relationship between AI and genomic editing and CRISPR, for example, Um, or AI, uh, the relationship between AI and um, collaborative robotics and smart cities. The the challenge is that our federal government, we don't have a giant pool of money sitting around to fund the kinds of basic research um, that are going to not just propel our own economy, but but do like like fulfill the promises a lot of us have been told about what our futures will look like once technology helps us out. Um, th- this is the crux of the problem. And again, why I keep coming back right. to we, we have to allow these companies to keep making money. They, they, the only way forward, the only way forward is if the G Mafia can be the heroes to their shareholders and if the shareholders can exercise some patience uh, and there's some some courageous leadership somewhere within the investment community where somebody is willing to stand up and say, we're going to let these companies uh, keep their heads down and work really hard. And it's cool if we don't earn huge um, margins over the next like 16 quarters. We're going to be mm. okay with that. I know, but like somebody somewhere is going to have to exercise some. So let me, um, try, let me try a different story. Sure. Let me try a different story. First of all, there's no free lunch. So it'd be great to have infinite innovation at no cost, but always good for people. Doesn't happen. Technology always has these spillovers that are destructive and we try, we cope with them though. So I think we have to have a little bit of faith in human adaptation. And I think part of your book is a warning that that's going to be a lot harder than you think because it's going to be here before you know it in a way that you can't do anything about it. And I think that's a genuine concern and I, and I salute you for it. It's uh it's a real issue. I'm not suggesting that we're going to keep getting this innovation if we put these things in nonprofit form. That we won't. We're going to have to give up on some of those future miracles that, that we're going to live to 140 or whatever the thing is. And, and the truth is, we human beings, we don't like giving up on that. We like making the world better in different ways. So that's not going to change either. So I'm left, at least for now, with the idea that you know culture changes. I don't think you ever get a world where Investors say, I don't care how much money I make. What you could get, though, is a world where people are ashamed to do things that are destructive of of human flourishing and and human agency and freedom. And maybe maybe that'll help stem some of this tide. I'm heartened, at least, that you're willing to have this conversation and that people are willing to listen to the conversation. Because, I mean, I think as our as our uh, spirited discussion right now points out, there's no easy answer. So I've come up with a handful of, of I think, very pinpointed, practical ways forward. You know, you've got an interesting idea on, on a way forward. I think the, the key point here is we need to think of a different way forward. Uh, preserving the status quo um, gives China a strategic advantage that is going to become a problem for us the further along that we go. And, um, you know, the G Mafia working on their own competitively rather than collaboratively, I think also causes us problems and probably sets them up for a regulatory environment that will become problematic rather than helpful in any way, not just to them, but to, to, to everybody. So we've got to you know, we've got to stop fetishizing the future and, you know, 
talking as though AI was some distant off thing and, and get real about the, the challenges that we are facing. And, and in the middle of all of this, I am calling upon the brilliant women and men and um, not, you know, gender non-conforming people who live uh, and work uh, around these companies to exercise some creative and courageous leadership uh, to, to take us into the future. I don't know what more we can ask at this point. My guest today has been Amy Webb. And what I did tell listeners is, I don't know if Amy, if you remember, but in the early, early days of EconTalk, I want to say 2006 or seven. It was, yeah, a long time ago. I brought you in to give me advice on how we can make EconTalk more successful. So I'm giving you, uh, well, let's say half the credit for the, <laughs> for our success of giving your suggestions. And I want to thank you for that and for uh Fascinating book and a great conversation. Thank you so much. It really was. Uh, I-, I learned a lot. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.